Our next speaker is Emily Sims. Uh, Emily is part of the team at Prosper Australia, an independent think tank and tax reform lobby group based in Melbourne. Prosper's mission is to shift the base of public revenue from labour and capital to land and natural resource rents. I'll uh, now hand over to Emily. Thank you. Thanks, Derek. Can I have a problem? Yeah. To hide behind? Sure. I don't have a PowerPoint. Um, wow, this has been really awesome. Um, I'm here to talk about an old dead white guy uh, um, who I managed to get through most of the political science degree, all of the political science degree, and most of the master's degree without ever hearing of. But when I read his work, I was really inspired by it. Um, so in the late 19th century, the popular American philosopher Henry George was preoccupied with the great paradox of the industrial age. Why hadn't the astounding technological progress resulted in general prosperity? Why did the Industrial Revolution mean slum-filled cities, colonial appropriation, mass immigration, and the eye-watering concentration of wealth in the hands of the few? In the current era, we're considering a very similar set of problems. In 2015, Oxfam calculated that just 62 individuals had the same wealth as 3.6 billion. Since the turn of the century, I mean, that's the last century, 1999, uh, the poorest half of the world's population had received just 1% of the total increase in global wealth, while half of that increase had gone to the top 1%, the 1% and the 99%. How has it happened? My purpose here today is to briefly outline the economic and philosophical ideas of Henry George. I want to present these ideas because despite him being incredibly popular in his own time, to my generation he's completely unknown. His contribution to the utopian vision of several generations is largely forgotten. And even in my own discipline of urban planning, a discipline that's deeply inflected with George's paradigms because of the Garden City movement, he's rarely acknowledged. My second motivation is in the context of building the new economy. I want to weave a historical thread into our thinking about the commons. And I was grateful to um, Richard Dennis, actually, for mentioning that maybe some of our solutions um, are in the past. And I think that ties in with what Anne was saying as well about needing to bring our past and our future into the present moment. Um, because in the 19th century, they really were thinking about the commons. And we have this inscribed in the Australian Commonwealth. Um, and it was a, an important theme for addressing the socioeconomic and spatial inequalities that were seen at that time. And really, all the big problems are common resource management problems. We've got climate change, deforestation, all the things that people have been talking about. Big common resource management problems. And that's how Henry George saw it. He also saw European appropriation of the new world and the antipodes as a relief valve for Western civilization to just kick the can down the road a little bit further until one day, if the systemic causes of poverty and environmental destruction were not addressed, there'd be nowhere to run, and we'd realize that we live on a finite planet. And I think we can all agree that that day has indeed come. So Henry George was primarily concerned with the causes of poverty. And his diagnosis of the problem is given in his 1879 volume, Progress and Poverty. He said, the reason why, in spite of the increase of productive power, wages constantly tend towards a minimum which will give but a bare living, is that, with the increase in productive power, rent tends towards an even greater increase, thus producing a constant tendency to the forcing down of wages. Land, being necessary to labour and being reduced to private ownership, 
every increase in productive power of labour but increases rent. Rental growth outstrips wages. That's all. That's his big idea. And to understand that, you really do need to understand the law of economic rent, which was stated by David Ricardo in 1817, which is that the rent of land is determined by the excess of its product over that which the same application can secure from the least productive land in use. I'm sure everyone understands immediately what that means. I find it a really easy concept to understand and very difficult to explain, um, especially in a five-minute pitch at a market store when talking about our work at Prosper. But I had a good go with the Uber driver this morning as practice. He got it. So let me go. Economic rent is a surplus value conferred by location. In a classic agricultural example, better soil results in a larger harvest, even if the inputs are the same. On marginal land, the harvest might only be enough to keep the far farmer alive. And in this case, we would say that the economic rent is zero. Due to competition, farm labour demands the same wages, whether the land is being farmed, if the land being farmed is marginal or not. So economic sur surplus falls to the value of land. A farmer will be willing to pay more for acreage with better soil because she knows she'll get a bigger surplus. In urban studies, we learn about the bid rent curve, the classic economic model that helps explain how cities get their shape. The most valuable land is at the centre and it's economical to build at very high densities. Montunin theorised that accessibility to market was the most significant factor to shape that big rent curve. However, modern economics of agglomeration count a broad swathe of benefits that accrue to stacking ourselves in little concrete anthills and stacking those anthills next to anthills of similar size. But here's Henry George on the subject. So another immigrant comes and, guided by the same attraction, settles where there are already two. Labour now has an effectiveness which, in a solitary state, it could not approach. When one kills a bullock, the others partake of it and thus have fresh meat all the time. Together they hire a schoolmaster and the children are taught for a fractional part of what similar teaching would cost the first settler. It becomes a comparatively easy matter to send to the nearest town for someone who's always going. A blacksmith and a wheelwright soon set up shops and our settler can have his tools repaired for a small part of the labour it formerly cost him. <coughs> a store is opened and he can get what he wants as he wants it. A post office gives him regular communication and then comes a cobbler and a carpenter, a harness maker, a doctor and a little church. It's lovely, isn't it? Lovely. <laughs> there are gratifications for the social and intellectual nature, the power of sympathy, the sense of companionship. The emulation of comparison and contrast open a wider, fuller and more varied life. You can see from that vignette why Henry George was a very popular author amongst non-academics. Uh, he has an amazing knack of creating a vignette of, you know, living in a small town that certainly didn't occur to me when I was growing up in Urella. Um, but it does remind me of another amateur economist, a woman named Jane Jacobs, who argued that a complex web of interdependencies that cre create and exist in a city, that complex system, gives rise to productive surpluses. Diversity in itself creates value. Amenity, opportunity, diversity, ecological services, access to care and comfort, public investment, anything that improves all of the above, these are capitalised into the value of location. And so too are disamenities. For example, where I live, there's no trees, no public transport, and there's a lot of raving lunatics in the mall, and all of those factors keep the rents low enough for me to live there on a not-for-profit wage. <laughs> George 
contended that if you owned the land, then it didn't matter whether you worked 12-hour days or you slept like another Rip Van Winkle. As the population grew and others laboured around you, you would still collect the economic rent. So in developing his theory of justice, George's starting point is the inalienable right of all earth dwellers to the earth itself. Land and natural resources, according to Henry George, were nature's gifts, the product of naturally occurring abundance or cooperatively, cooperatively created wealth of the social, social animals. Returns to labour, on the other hand, represented the effort of the individual on this abundance, on natural materials. Capital, in accordance with a classical economic precept, is congealed labour. It's savings from labour and therefore represents the effort of an individual on land. The primacy of land and natural resources as a factor of production in Henry George's thinking cannot be underestimated or understated. And it's this critical distinction between this classical economic paradigm and neoclassical economics that was mentioned by Hayden, where capital substitutability is also applied to land. That is not part of George's paradigm. You cannot substitute land and natural resources for capital under his understanding. As he bore witness to the great migrations and social upheavals of the late 19th century, he attributed the inequality he saw with the relations which we have established between labour and natural material and means of labour, between man and the planet, which is his dwelling place, his workshop and his storehouse. He says, to drop a man in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and tell him he is at liberty to walk ashore would not be more bitter irony than to place a man where all land is appropriated as the property of others and tell him that he is free at liberty to work for himself and to enjoy his own earnings. So in George's theory of justice, two sets of rights emerge. First is the right of the individual to their share of the commons, the economic rents falling to all finite natural resources. Second is the right of every individual, and this is where we get a bit libertarian, to the fruits of their own labour. Socialising the rents was the means to guarantee that the labour of others wasn't unjustly appropriated. Our fundamental mistake, he argued, is in treating land as private property. But George wasn't advocating for the socialisation or collectivisation of property rights. He had no interest in everyone getting their own little patch of dirt um, and working it side by side. He was enthusiastic about cities and modernity and innovation and entrepreneurial capitalism. He was a New Yorker. Nobody in their right mind would invest time and energy into enterprise without security of tenure. Equally, no one in their right mind would bother working if they could simply speculate. So the key for George to a laissez-faire free economy was collecting the rents. How do you collect the rents? Well, two principal mechanisms were advocated by Henry George. The first was market deregulation and free trade. <laughs> and the second is land value taxation, natural resource rent taxation. So free trade is considered to be integral to a just society for two reasons. And firstly, for the reasons laid out by Smith and Ricardo regarding competition. I think we're all very familiar with these arguments around competition, supply and demand, price signaling, you know. This is why economists have such power in society, because they can describe things. They're describing things that we 
enjoy, like the ability to get a coffee outside when there's too many people in the line <laughs> there. But secondly, because in a protected market, not free market, there are great incentives to seek political favours and rent seek. So land value taxation went hand in hand with free trade in a sense that it enabled the free market to also be a fair market. Why? Because the productivity gains to labour that would otherwise fall to private property could be shared or used to fund government. The freedom and protection extended to the private sector in forms of security of tenure and contract and the right of earnings to labour and commerce were balanced by this protection of the Commonwealth, the wealth derived from the use of land and natural resources. Henry George was emphatic that the tax upon land values is the just and most equal of all taxes. It falls only upon those who receive from society and nature a peculiar and valuable benefit and upon them in the proportion to the benefit that they receive. Capital improvements are excluded because they are the product of capital. The building is not taxed only its location and the more valuable the location, the higher the tax. If we think about global cities, and we understand a global division of labour, we think about the value of a location in London versus the value of a location in, you know, Maury, New South Wales. Interesting historical side note, there is no freehold title in the ACT. The Australian Capital Territory is entirely leasehold title and this is because it was hoped by the people who left the money to the organisation that pays my wages that it would be a model land tax in polity. And those aims are actually being reignited in the ACT as it's taking steps to shift its tax base back to land. Land value tax and resource rent tax have low or nil marginal excess burdens, which is a fancy way of saying that they impose no cost on the economy because they do not discourage production or consumption, displace activity or create inefficiencies elsewhere. And they are almost impossible to avoid. The last point being particularly pertinent in light of what Oxfam describes as a global system of tax avoidance, sucking the life out of the welfare states in rich countries and denying poor countries the resources that they need to tackle poverty. Land and natural resource taxes are the core of the tax mix proposed by Ken Henry's tax review. To my mind, however, the minutiae of how we collect the rent is just a distraction from the ethical imperative that we do. So what's the relevance of Georgist ideas today? I'm actually rather hoping that you will answer that question for me. I wanted to throw these ideas into this forum among researchers and philosophers and activists and economists because I want to find new ways of engaging with them. There are other new ways that we can put these Georgist paradigms to work. At Prosper we talk a lot about rent seeking and housing affordability. Every year we use water usage data as a proxy for vacancy and we build a very accurate picture of the latent supply of housing because we've theorised that speculative investment in urban land is driving a large asset bubble, this is driving up the cost of housing and locking many people into a lifetime of debt repayments. We've argued, as many others have, that a broad-based land tax would reduce the speculative heat in the housing market and help return land prices to long-term averages. Market-based mechanisms for internalising ecological services like the carbon tax or taxes on the use of scarce common assets are unified in Georgia's analytical framework. Like a land tax, they seek to reduce the scope for private appropriation of access to nature's gifts. Mineral wealth, the capacity of the atmosphere and the oceans to absorb carbon, our watersheds and our forests. They belong to us all and the economic rents derived from their use should be socialised. 
the repeal of the mineral resource rent tax, for example, by the Abbott government should have had us all frothing at the mouth. But no one cares about tax. <laughs> Over the years, Georges have earned a bit of a reputation for zealotry, um, but I'm going to let Jen Henry George have the last word here. I fully recognise the fact that even after we do this, much will remain to do. We might recognise the equal right to land, and yet tyranny and spoliation be continued. But whatever else we do, so long as we fail to recognise the equal right to the elements of nature, nothing will avail to remedy that unnatural inequality in the distribution of wealth which is fraught with so much evil and danger. Thank you.